All right, good evening, everybody. Uh, so glad to see a few of you out already. As you, as you join in uh, with the live stream, if you would, drop us a comment and let us know who's, who's with us tonight, who's uh, following along. I'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, we have uh, several questions tonight, and I, I don't want to uh, run past the hour if I can. I'd like to keep it within the hour. So I'm going to start off with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive right into the questions tonight. Father, thank you this evening for the opportunity to open up the Word of God and to search the Scriptures and to see whether these things are so. Lord, all the wisdom and knowledge and understanding we need, Father, it's in that book. And we trust that the Spirit of God will enlighten us tonight and help us to find the truth we need. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, guys, thank you so much for all the questions. Uh, several people did write in. I had a lot of other people that passed by the pulpit or uh, catch me privately uh, and, and ask questions. And I thought about including those as well, but I think we're going to have enough tonight to fill the hour. So let's, let's dive right into the questions. Uh, first one, is it wrong for a Christian to receive needle therapy? Uh, this is very close to what a lot of people would know as acupuncture. And uh, you'd be surprised how often this question actually comes up. So I've already pulled up the verse for this, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. The, the Bible says here, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now you may look at that verse and think, but that says nothing about needle therapy. Yeah, that's about as close as you're going to get to a verse in the Bible that deals with this subject. There are no verses that speak about uh, what some people would call alternative medicines, right? And needle therapy or acupuncture, acupressure, those kind of things, you generally see them associated with uh, medical practices from the Far East. And this thing, these things get into uh, releasing your some sort of spiritual energy. You know, you put the needle in the right spot and people that believe in chakras, right, uh, they, they would believe that a certain pathway is now opened up, not just a physical pathway, mind you, but some people believe a spiritual pathway is opened up and it aligns your spirit in a certain way. And that's the danger in it. If somebody is approaching this subject and, and believes that by putting a needle in a certain spot, you are going to fix a spiritual problem. Then, yes, if that's the way you're approaching it, if that's what you think the needle is doing, then it's wrong because that's, that's not how the spiritual realm works. Now, the other concern, and this is the reason I gave you this verse, is if needle therapy or acupuncture is connected to or associated with these uh, incorrect spiritual ideas, then wouldn't it be wrong for a Christian to be involved in it because it might affect his testimony? How can he give glory to God if he's doing something that is connected to a, a false spirit, an unclean spirit maybe, or chakras, some false teaching? Well, bear in mind that if you, if you are partaking of this or using this, and there are other people that are privy to it. They know that you're doing it. And they don't understand the difference between uh, acupuncture as it applies to the spiritual realm and acupuncture as, as it applies to the physical realm. If they see all of that group together, then for testimony's sake, what you need to do is keep that private. 
if other people know, they know that you're doing it and it's confusing them or it has become a stumbling block to them, right? This is what the Bible would call being an offense to them. As you can see, verse 32, give none offense. So if you're causing somebody to stumble, offending them, then you would need to explain to them, listen, I don't think this has anything to do with chakras. I believe this is something that helps me physically. And it has been medically, scientifically proven that the needle put in the right place can make a physical difference. So if a Christian is, is seeking that sort of therapy, I, I personally don't have an issue with it, but I would recommend just to avoid confusion, probably not advertise that you're using that alternative medicine. Let me give you another verse on this. And this is um, when you're dealing with gray areas, right? Romans chapter 14, this is the best place to go for it, I think. Um, so when there's not a clear verse dealing with a subject such as acupuncture, then we have to go to these verses that are a bit more broad in general. And Paul says in verse 22, Romans 14, 22, hast thou faith? Do you believe that this certain thing is okay, whatever that thing is? So in this case, needle therapy. Do you believe that it's okay? Um, the, the, the way that you're approaching it, right? If you don't think that it has anything to do with a spiritual, uh, with the spiritual realm, then there's no verse in the Bible that you're contradicting or breaking or disobeying, right? So hast thou faith? You think that's okay? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in that thing which he alloweth. So you personally are convinced this is okay. There, there's nothing wrong with getting some physical help, even if it comes through a needle. I know that it has nothing to do with the spiritual realm. I'm not tapping into that to get the help. Great. Then better to keep it to yourself. Uh, Romans 14 verse 5, at the end of it especially, you see this, let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So by no means am I trying to say that if you think that the needle going in is doing something spiritual, I'm not telling you, ignore your conscience and just do it anyway. I, I'm not trying to convince you from the Bible that needle therapy is the way you personally should go. But on these issues where there's not a black and white verse to tell us yay or nay, then you need to be fully persuaded in your own mind. Which is, by the way, why people ask these sort of questions. Because they, they would like more clarity. Maybe they have some doubts because they're not sure if there are some things in the Bible about it. So hopefully that helps. All right, now, if you're tuning in and, and I'm answering your question, and I, maybe I misunderstood the question or maybe my answer goes a little left of the target and a little right of the target, please feel free to, to chip in in the comment section and, and let me know if there's something else that you were um, curious about. And for that sake, even if you weren't the one asking the question, if uh, maybe as I discuss these things, something else comes up in, in your mind, please feel free. I, I want this to be as interactive as it can be. All right, next question. <laughs> For, I'll explain the picture just now. All right, this is a two-parter. When Saul, this will be the man we know as King Saul, when Saul prophesied, 1 Samuel 19, 24, did he lose control of himself? And I, I don't know how familiar everybody is with that story, but Saul comes across some other prophets, and he begins to prophesy along with them. So first thing we need to deal with is, did he lose control of himself, which we will, and then the second question, I actually think question two will be answered in question one, while we answer that. But 
The second question was, was this in any way connected to the evil spirit that previously troubled Saul? You might remember back in 1 Samuel 16, uh, David had to come and play his harp to calm Saul down because he had been troubled by an evil spirit from God. All right, so let's deal with the first question, and I think that'll answer the second at the same time. So let's pull up 1 Samuel 19 and verse 24. And what I'd like to do is, is start up here just a little bit. Uh, 1 Samuel 19, 22. Is that right? Is that what I want? You know what? I'm going to start us up even a little higher. Yeah, 1 Samuel 19, verse 20. And Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as appointed over them, the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Now, what are they doing? When it says prophesy, what are they doing? They're not speaking nonsense, gibberish words, right? They're, they're in complete control of themselves. It's not that the Spirit of God is has uh, flipped a switch in their heads and now they're no longer thinking about what they're doing. They're just talking robotically. It's not that. But these messengers have come across some other prophets. What does it mean to prophesy? It means to, to speak forth the words of God. Now, that often does relate to things that are going to happen in the future, but not always. But anytime somebody says, thus saith the Lord, that's prophesying. So these messengers, they get near these prophets and then they start also speaking forth the words of God. Now, it could very much be the case that when they got near, they also they heard what these prophets were saying about the future. And then they likewise started chipping in saying, yes, and this is going to happen and that's going to happen. But there's nothing that would indicate there that anybody lost control. Verse 21, and when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they prophesied also. Then went he also to Ramah and came to a great well that is in Siku. And he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they be at Naoth in Ramah. Verse 23, and he went thither to Naoth in Ramah and the spirit of God was upon him also. So do you see how this answers the second question about an evil spirit from God? That, that is a separate issue, and we can deal with that if you'd like to from 1 Samuel 16, but I don't see anything carrying over into this chapter from that previous event. The Spirit of God was upon him also, and he went on and prophesied until he, ca he came to Nioth in Ramah. Now, now notice, this is affecting Saul now. But he didn't lose control of himself. He was on a journey. He got to a certain spot. The Spirit of God comes upon him. He begins to speak forth the words of the Lord. And I do think that Saul was most likely talking about the future here. Because, and you read this in other places in 1 Samuel, Saul knew that David was going to be the king. Um, he didn't accept that fact very well, right? He attacked David, chased David, tried to exterminate him, didn't work. But you see Saul here and there giving into that idea and saying, I know this is what God's going to do and God's going to prosper your kingdom, this and that. So that, it, biblically speaking, that's the indication we have as to what Saul probably was talking about. But there's nothing here that would indicate he lost control. Verse 24, and I think this is where the, the main concern is. He stripped off his clothes also and prophesied before Samuel in like manner. So now he finally gets to where Samuel is and he continues to prophesy. 
And it's the stripping off of his clothes, right? It says, he, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. So he's, he's laying down. Is now, now has he lost control? Well, no, he, he laid down. It, he didn't, it doesn't say he fell down, right? He laid down. Um, this is quite often what people do before they lay down. They take off their clothes. Now, stripped off his clothes, and it does say he was naked. Biblically speaking, right? The word naked, uh, it can work two ways. There are times where we're talking about completely without clothes, right? That's, that can be the case. But I think what we're dealing with here, this, this is how it's often used in the Bible. Biblically naked is when you take off your, um, I want to say overclothes, but you're left with just your underwear, that type of thing. And biblically speaking, they would just be left with the robe underneath. Um, that and for even a man back in biblical times, if he took off his overcoat and all he has on is that, that undergarment, it would reach down to approximately halfway down his thigh, that would be considered naked. Uh, the Old Testament priest, they were commanded to have their garments cover all the way down to the knee. And that was to protect anybody from seeing their nakedness, right? And that would be their loin area. So biblically speaking, when, it's, when certain parts of the body are showing, um, that's considered naked. And it's not just what we would consider private parts, even down to the thigh area. So I think that's what we're dealing with here is, is Saul, he's come to a stop on his journey and he's overwhelmed by what's going on. God has gotten a hold of his heart and Saul has been kicking, strangely enough, same name, right? Saul has been kicking against the pricks. The truth has been revealed that David is the rightful anointed uh, heir to the throne and Saul has been fighting it. And, and when these sort of things come upon him, he's thinking, man, I really, I don't like this truth, but I, I know it. I know it's so. I know deep down it's so. So I think he's just overwhelmed. And uh, that's why I've chosen the picture, by the way, that I have. I didn't want to show Saul without any, with it just in his underwear laying on the ground. So I chose a picture that I, I thought would be somewhat fitting to the, to the question. Uh, so yeah, I, I think Saul, he, he takes off those, those outer clothing, the outer clothing that he had on. And uh, he goes before Samuel and talks about these things and says, you know, I know these things are true. This is what's going to happen. And then after he's done prophesying, he lays down. He's just worn out. He's worn out from the experience. I don't see anything in here that says he lost control or fell over. There's nothing about being slain in the spirit, that type of stuff. Um, this question, though, at the end of the verse, wherefore they, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Um, I've, I've actually preached about that in the past. This is Twice this happened to Saul. I think also in 1 Samuel 10, it happened one other time. But nobody was quite sure what to do with Saul. They knew he was a king. But do we include Saul in the list of like bona fide God-ordained prophets? Because he did speak forth the words of God. He did have the Spirit of God upon him for a time. Um, but there was nothing else about Saul's life that would indicate he was a God-called prophet. And uh, really, there's a very practical thought to that. Uh, people should know what God has called you to do. God help you if you leave doubts in the minds of the people around you and that bear witness to your life. And they say, man, I don't know what he was. <laughs> That's kind of what Saul left the people thinking there. All right, so I hope that helps with that question. And now, Revelation chapter 21. So let's just 
as you can see the question is relating to that so let me jump over to that verse uh, this question is does revelation 21 verse 1 indicate that there will be no more literal sea and then the follow-up question to this. I notice with, when I do this for the kids, there's normally not like two-part or three-part questions. For the adults, there's, there's many layers to these questions. So as a kind of a follow-up to that, they also ask, does C, the word C, S-E-A, does C in Revelation 13.1 refer to hell? Now, if I remember correctly, the way this came to me, I think there was a little bit of confusion about the word C as it applied to Revelation 13.1. So I've I admit here, I've reworded that a little bit so, so that we can deal with uh, that verse also. So let's deal with both parts of this. Uh, Revelation 21 verse 1 says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. So what we know as heaven and earth, right? We're talking the sun, moon, and stars, you know, the, 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 the solar system, right? the galaxies, uh, the atmosphere the clouds, heaven and earth one day are going to pass away. And you read that at the end of Revelation 20. And then after they pass away, as you can see in, in Revelation 21.1, a new heaven, new earth come down, but there's no more sea. Um, we are not, there's nothing about this passage that would make us think we're dealing with figurative or symbolic things. Uh, we go on to read about a holy city, New Jerusalem, and there's a, a long, very detailed description of it. Nothing symbolic about it. There's, there's no indication in the chapter that these things are indicative of something else. So I, I do think that it is referring to a literal sea. Now, let's be sure that we understand biblically how far-reaching the term sea actually is. Does this indicate that on the new earth there's no more bodies of water? Well... I doubt that because in Revelation 22, we read about a, a, a river. Let's see if I can pull that verse real quick here. Oh, dear. I just got my arm out of the sling yesterday, so I'm still a bit stiff and getting used to typing again with two hands. Uh, let's see if, yeah, verse 1, Revelation 22, 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and uh, so on and so forth. So you can see that there is water there in the new creation. So I realize this is a river and it's not, that we're reading about right here in Revelation 22. And in chapter 21, it says no more sea. I, I get that those are two different bodies of water. So we might be, we still might be dealing with something that, you know, in the, in the new creation, there's no more oceans, as we in America would say. Uh, maybe there's just small bodies of water here and there. But as far as I know, rivers, they, what would be the correct term? They need a tributary. There's a tributary involved where they flow into a larger body of water. So it makes it sound, if there's a river in the new creation, it makes it sound as if there would be a, a sea as well. <clears throat> so let, let's expand on this a little bit. In the Bible, there is water, right, on the earth. And uh, interestingly enough, we're at, the, we're at one end of the Bible. Let me bring you back to the other end of the Bible and uh, shed a little light on this. Genesis 1, verse 6. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Right? So in the beginning, 
the, you can think of the universe as like a cone. It's shaped like a cone. And then the earth, think of that right in the middle of that, uh, of that cone. And then everything is covered in water. The earth is completely covered. And then on day two, God puts a firmament, a space, if you will. He creates a space between uh, the waters and the waters. You see that at verse 6. Let it divide the waters from the waters. So on the earth, at this point, on day two, the water is completely covering the earth. And then you look up and there's a sky, probably clouds at this point. And you keep going. If you keep going and going and going, you're eventually going to hit water up above your head. No matter where your starting point on the earth is, or you just keep going out or up, and you are going to hit a different body of water. So when we talk about the sea, right, usually we're referring to the one on the earth, but biblically there's water up above your head. And that water, right, it, forgive me, I don't have a, any way to illustrate this at the moment, so I'm doing the best I can with my hands. But the earth was completely covered in water. Then there's air or firmament, and then there's water up above that. If you keep going to the top of that cone shape, you're going to get up to what we know as the third heaven where the throne of God is at. So biblically, you have the first heaven. That's the uh, place for the clouds and the birds where they fly. The second heaven is the sun, moon, and stars, solar system, galaxies. Then there's a body of water, another a massive sea. And then beyond that, you have the throne of God. So you can see this also in, in verse 7 a little bit. God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament. That's what we know as the oceans. From the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. Now that being said, let me show you one more verse on this. Um, whew, my fingers are not working well for this keyboard. Psalm 148 verse 4. Praise him ye heavens of heavens. So there's multiple heavens. And ye waters that be above the heavens. All right, so you can see how this is consistent with what we've been discussing. So I, I think what we're dealing with in Revelation 21, verse 1, I think that when he says there's no more sea, the waters that are above the heavens are done away with. Because right, after you get past those waters that are above your head, you get to the throne of God. In the new creation, God's throne is in New Jerusalem, which is down either on the earth or hovering right above it. So that's why there would be no more need for that sea. There's no more separation between God and men. He's dwelling on that, in the new creation with, uh, with his people. So I think that's, that's what we're reading about. It, in, that's my best uh, understanding of Revelation 21.1. No more sea, no more waters above the firmament. Revelation 13 now. Um, does this refer to hell? Now, this, this happens often when people do not approach the Bible in a literal way and they think that everything is symbolic. So let's read the verse and see where this would come from. It says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Now, without a long, detailed discussion on this passage, we're dealing with the kingdom of the Antichrist. And I believe the sea that's being referred to in this context is the Mediterranean Sea, if I understand it correctly. Um, it could be any another earthly body of water, I guess, but knowing that people were most familiar with the Mediterranean Sea in biblical times, usually when they talk about something rising up out of the sea, that's the sea they were referring to. 
I don't think that, I can't think of any verse in the Bible where C, S-E-A, refers to uh, the bottomless pit or, or hell. Uh, I understand why somebody would maybe see that in this verse because you have this devilish figure rising up out of it. And it's common to think that the devil rises up out of hell. But to be honest, right, the devil's not in hell. Not yet. He will be eventually, but, but not now. All right, so I hope that, I hope that helps. All right, I got another question here. Let's slip this in real quick. Emma's asking, is the bride of Christ the church? Yes, indeed, uh, it is. And when you get to lesson nine in discipleship, that's actually one of the things that you'll cover in that lesson. All right, next question. In light of John 19.31, what exactly was finished at the cross? All right, so this well-known verse here, this is where Jesus is, I said John 19.31, I thought that's how the question came. Forgive me, that should be John 19.30, shouldn't it? Sorry for that. Um, this is where Jesus is, is going to die, and the last thing he says is, it is finished. As you can see, therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, as I re recall, the question was, was quite... Um, there was a lot of details to this because the person who was asking is aware of the fact that after Jesus died, there's a lot more that took place, right? There's him going through hell. There's him resurrecting. There's several, several things, several events that happened after this. So when Jesus says, it is finished, what exactly is he referring to? Because if it's all that was necessary for salvation, right, which is how it's often preached, then that would mean, it would seem to mean that we don't need the resurrection, um, which obviously isn't so. The resurrection is, is of the utmost importance as it pertains to, to our salvation. So what was finished? All right, let's, in order to answer this, I'm going to use another verse from the Bible to shed some light on it. John 17 and verse 4. This is Jesus praying before the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, he's on his way to the Garden. John 18, he actually steps into the garden and, and prays that very famous prayer that we're familiar with, not my will, but thine be done. But on the way to the garden, this is what he was praying. He's praying while he's walking. In, and his disciples can hear him saying this stuff. In verse 4, he says to the Father, I have glorified thee, here's the key phrase, on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. Now, notice he says almost the same thing, right? I have finished the work, but he hasn't even made it to the cross yet. So when Jesus is saying, I have finished, he has secured his spot on the cross. I believe that's what he's indicating here. He obviously hasn't died yet. There's, there's still, you know, he still needs to follow through with that. But everything has been set in motion. Everything is in place. All the prophecies that needed to be fulfilled had been fulfilled. Jesus had lived a sinless life. That was also part, a necessary part for all of this plan to work. And Jesus knows everybody is doing exactly as God knew they would, as, as things were prophesied. People were selling him out and betraying him. So Jesus knew this is going to happen. It's going to happen. So he's speaking as if it's done. He ha it's just a matter of time before he gets to go to the cross and finish, right? But Jesus has every intention of following through with this. Notice in the passage, 
how this uh, how this plays out. And notice the wording here. Let me get the right verses. Verse 11, in the same prayer, Jesus says, And now I am no more in the world. Well, he's standing on the earth in Jerusalem while he's praying that. I think this is a, actually a, one of those occasions, right? You see the word now? It's one of those times that uh, South Africa got it right. <laughs> um, I'm coming now. I'm there now. Now as in I'm, I'm getting to it just now, now, or just now. I don't know how you guys use it. I, I, I enjoy uh, playing with the term, but I really don't know what it means, <laughs> how everybody means it. But now I'm no more in the world. It's a done deal. I'm heading out of the world. But that's, that's the way he words it. Verse 12, much the same. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in that. Well, he's still with them, but he knows that this next step is going to happen. Uh, verse 13, now I come to thee. Well, not really. He has a few other things to do, but he's about to get to that. All right, so hopefully that makes sense out of why he said it is finished, even though he had a few more things to do. By the time Jesus is dying on the cross, right? When, once he dies a sinless death, then the resurrection is, is definitely going to happen, right? God would be wrong to leave him in hell and to leave his body in the grave because Jesus himself was sinless. Now, he still had to go through that because he was carrying our sins, but the resurrection was a sure thing by the time he said, it is finished. So he accomplished the work that God gave him to do on the earth. As much as he could do on the earth, it was done. And then he can say, it is finished. So his earthly work was done at the cross. If, if, if that, that, that may be the shortest way I can answer that question. What exactly was finished? His earthly work. But the earthly work being finished, it secured that these other things would take place. All right, next question. Do the stories about Jesus cursing the fig tree in Matthew and Mark's gospel correspond to the parable found in Luke 13, verses 6 to 9? All right, so let's pull up Luke chapter 13. Now, the story that they're asking about in Matthew and Mark, Barrett is asking, gave up the ghost, uh, his spirit. He, uh, the, the word spirit and ghost comes from the same root word, pneuma. Uh, so it's just he gave up his spirit. He died. Uh, he stopped breathing. You can think of it like that. All right, so with this question, in Matthew and Mark's gospel, you have a story in Matthew 21 and in Mark 11 where Jesus, he's, he's going in between Bethany, a small town outside of Jerusalem, and then he goes into Jerusalem proper. And then he goes, he, for about a day and a half, he's going in and out, in and out. And this is the time that he cleanses the temple, right? You read that story in there. And then in the process of going in and out, he passes by this fig tree and curses the fig tree. So that's Matthew and Mark. But they're wanting to know um, this parable in Luke 13. Now, this question, they didn't give me the verses from Luke. They just said, Does it, is, is, is it the same thing that Luke's parable was talking about? So I, I assume that they're trying to connect it to this. I don't know of any parable in, any other parable in Luke that would uh, involve this fig tree. So let me know if this is not what you were wondering about. But in Luke 13, 6, he spake also this parable, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, why cumbereth it the ground? 
And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it. I'll fertilize it. If it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. He never did expound and explain this parable to his disciples. But it's a very deep, very interesting parable. Now, does it directly correspond to the stories that we have in Matthew and Mark? No. All right. Yes, a fig tree is involved in, in both, but that's, that's about the strongest connection you're going to have as far as you know, the wording of, of the text. There is something very interesting, though, that also connects these passages in a way. The fig tree is used as a nod to Israel, figuratively speaking. And what you're dealing with here is Israel as the fig tree. Jesus has come seeking fruit, and he hasn't found any. And he says, that's enough. Cut it down. Jesus ministered for three and a half years to Israel. By, the, by this point in the book of Luke, right, we're just about towards the end of his ministry, and we're to that three-year mark, and he's saying, okay, enough's enough. Cut it down. And then, no, no, please give it one more chance. Forgive me. Let, let, let's get this exactly right. I think the father would be the one saying, cut it down. And Jesus is saying, forgive them. They know not what they do. Let's give it one more chance. But the truth of it still remains. Let's give Israel a second chance. So even though they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, on the cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And in the book of Acts, you have about six months where the apostles are reaching out to just a, a strictly Jewish crowd. And they get that second chance, and they blow it. So what you're reading here is at that three-year mark, the decision is made, let's give them a little more time, right? And then after they get a little more time, they blow it again. And the problem was they didn't find fruit. No fruit coming from the nation of Israel. So the nation, right, as a nation, they get cut down. And that happened in 70 AD. They get run out of the land. So you can see there is a, a slight connection because in Matthew and Mark, what Jesus does to the fig tree, I believe he's doing, again, as a nod towards the spiritual condition of that generation of Israelites. He came seeking fruit, but he didn't find any. He should have. Now, this, is, this leads directly into the next question. This person also wanted to know, why did Jesus curse the fig tree then, the one in Matthew and in Mark. Uh, and very interesting about this, in, in one of those two stories, I think it's in Mark's gospel, it says it wasn't even the time of figs yet, right? So if it wasn't the time of figs, then why would it be okay for Jesus to punish the tree, curse the tree for not having figs, if it's not time for that yet? It seems as if Jesus went too far. And that's one of the accusations made against Jesus that you find a lot of skeptics have made. I, please don't think that the person asking this is also trying to be accusatory here. I'm just saying it's, it's been a question that has come up many times through the ages. All right, so let's explain the, the process of the fig tree a little bit. The, a fig tree will produce figs twice in the year. Uh, let me actually give you a verse on this that at least uh, intimates this. In Nahum 3, verse 12, it says, All thy strongholds shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Now notice that phrase, first ripe figs. Those first ripe figs appear right around March, 
March, April, right in there. And if those first ripe figs appear, right, if you see on a fig tree in March that there are some of these first ripe figs, that indicates there will be figs later on in the year, right about August or so, there will be figs then. If you go to a tree in March, April, in the time when you would expect first ripe figs, and you don't see any, that means in August, you won't see any either. So it's, it's the whole idea of first fruits, right? If there are no first fruits, you don't expect anything later on. So what does this, what picture would this draw in our mind? The Lord came seeking fruit. He had every right to expect fruit. He didn't see any. And he knows, okay, if they're not going to accept this, well, the mercy of God says give them another chance. But sure enough, later on, there was still no fruit. So I think the reason Jesus curses that fig tree, it had leaves. It was making a profession to say, hey, I'm a living tree. I'm producing but not really. Just it was all outward. There was no depth to it, no uh, no fruit to it. And you say, but it, it it says it wasn't the time of fruit. It wasn't the time of of harvest. We're not in August yet. But Jesus did die about mid March, right around there. Uh, that was about the time of the Passover in, in those days. So he could expect to see some first ripe figs, uh, but he didn't. I think when the text says it wasn't the time of figs yet, not the time of the harvest at the towards the end of the year. All right, so Jesus curses the tree because it has no fruit. It has no first fruit, which means it's not going to have any fruit later. And that was a reminder to Israel and of Israel or, you know, for Israel to say, listen, you guys aren't going to bear fruit. This is the punishment you're going to face. And, and let's get this right as well. It's not that God is completely done with Israel, right? Because once that fig tree gets cursed, Jesus said, no fruit's ever going to grow on you again. So some people have taken that to mean, well, that's it. God's punished Israel forever, and they're never going to sprout again. And that's not true. Romans 11 tells us that they will. As a nation, God is going to restore them. So the way we understand Matthew and Mark, as it pertains to uh, Israel, that fig tree being a, a representing Israel, that generation of Jews was not going to bear fruit. And I think that's what Jesus was somewhat prophetically indicating there. All right, so I hope that helps with uh, the question about the fig tree. It's a good question. Like I said, many people have asked that down through the ages. All right, this next one. Is studying a good thing? Now, that might seem like a, like a very sim simple question, but let me, I want to give you a little bit of the background. I didn't have space on the, on the slide to type all these words out. And uh, let me just tell you a little bit of the, the backstory to this so you understand where this question is coming from. This person wrote, I'm very curious, like I'm a curious person, and I like understanding things and figuring things out. So naturally, as I learned about God, I started asking questions. To that, I say, praise God. I get excited when somebody starts asking those kind of questions. So many people have told me that I shouldn't do that because it means I rely too little on the Spirit. I, I must admit when I read that, my heart kind of broke because, man, that's the one thing you don't want to do is quench the Spirit. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. First Thessalonians 5 says, quench not the Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit starts to work in somebody and 
and actually cultivates a hunger and a thirst to know more about God. What is the natural way of satisfying that, that hunger or thirst? To ask questions. To say, please, I'm hungry. Somebody feed me, right? Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse, verse 2. Matter of fact, let me pull it up for you. 1 Peter 2 and verse 2. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. So when a baby gets hungry, that baby starts to cry out. and doesn't care who it bothers, who it wakes up. I want to be fed. That baby's going to make some noise. And for new Christians, how it often happens is they start knocking on the pastor's door, sending him WhatsApps or calling him at odd hours saying, hey, I've read this in the Bible. What does this mean? Help me understand this. They start making some noise. Somebody feed me. That's a great thing. That is an excellent indication, right? If that desire is in there, that's, that's one of the evidences that you're saved, is that you do have this desire. Now, the idea that if I ask questions, I'm not relying on the Spirit, well, what would then that mean? If, if I'm not supposed to ask questions and just rely on the Spirit, then I would have to be going by, by feelings, right? You, you would feel the Spirit impressing you or putting some random thought in your mind, but how do you verify that? How do you check it out to know if it actually came from God? So I, I would strongly encourage whoever this was that asked, please, please do not let anybody discourage you from asking questions. I'm going to show you several verses now that I think promote the idea of learning just in general, right? Learning about anything is good, uh, but especially about the things of God. So Proverbs 1 verse 5, Solomon writes, a wise man will hear. Now, specifically, he's talking about he will hear the Proverbs. Uh, he'll listen to what these Proverbs are teaching him. A wise man will hear and will increase learning. And a man of understanding shall attain unto wise counsels. He's going to go ask people, what does this mean? Look at the next verse. To understand, He goes to the counsels to understand a proverb and the interpretation, the words of the wise and their dark sayings. So sometimes you read a verse in the Bible and the, the explanation is a bit dark. It's a bit deep. I, I don't get it. It's, it's kind of shrouded in some mystery. You go to somebody who studied it out or experienced it or knows a bit more about it, and then they can explain it to you. So you see, this is exactly what's intended. This is part of being wise. Um, another verse from Proverbs now, Proverbs 15, verse 28. Now the question was, is it a good thing to study? Proverbs 15, 28 says, The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. Right? He'll just say whatever's convenient. But the heart of the righteous says, let me get to the bottom of this. Let me understand it, and then I can explain it, and I can, I can assimilate the knowledge and use it myself, but I can also explain it to others. There's another verse that says the, uh, that the simple believeth every word. Right? So a simple man is somebody who says, all right, whatever you say, that's it. That that's, that's, wasn't a compliment. When he said the simple believeth every word, that's not like a, a great badge of faith. That was a knock against the person doing that. Matter of fact, I thought that verse was right around here, actually. In any event, you look that up in the book of Proverbs later on, you'll, you'll find it. It is in there somewhere. Uh, let me give you another couple verses on this subject. Acts 17, 11. This is Paul complimenting the Bereans on their attitude towards the Bible. 
Paul had gone and preached. And these people, instead of saying, okay, Paul, whatever you say, we believe it. They did this. He says, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. They put time and effort into studying. Um, They took what Paul said, and then they tried to match it with the Bible. So there's nothing wrong with looking into things, seeking to understand them. Uh, I'll give you an example, actually, real quick. I want to finish up in Timothy, but let me show you here in in Daniel 9, verse 2. It says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by books the number of the years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. So Daniel did not wait around for the Spirit of God to um, arbitrarily come upon him and, and put this knowledge in his head and say, here's what you need to know. Daniel cracked the books and started to study the, the, the writings that were passed down to him. And Jeremiah being a, a bona fide prophet, Daniel spent some time studying what Jeremiah had written and, and he understood what uh, the plan was, what God's prophetical plan was. That's a very acceptable way to, to go about uh, studying, to go about learning, and to go about understanding the things of God. Well, let's give you 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. I think this is a verse, those, anybody that's been in our church for any time at all is quite familiar with this, but uh, this verse says, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So this verse tells us how to go about studying, tells us that uh, you can't be lazy, right? Um, You need to work at it. You need to be a workman. But it says, study to show thyself approved unto God. So this is something that God's actually looking for to see if you're willing to put in the time and effort to figure something out. Uh, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul says to this young pastor, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, that is complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Now notice, Paul, if he had the mindset of don't ask questions, just rely on the Spirit, that couldn't have been Paul's attitude, right? I mean, look at what he says here. Timothy, you got a Bible, you got all you need. He says, you're thoroughly furnished unto all good works if you have the scripture. Now, does this mean that we don't need the Spirit of God? Well, obviously not. There's, remember that the Word of God, right, the, the scripture, it is the sword of the Spirit. So, and Jesus told us that the Spirit would guide us into all truth. But Jesus also said when he was praying to the Father in John 17, sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. So the Spirit of God is going to guide a person into the Bible so that they can learn what God has revealed to hundreds of people down through the ages, and then they can get caught up on on what God expects and what God's plan is. So please, by all means, continue studying, work hard at it, and uh, especially in the things of God, ask questions. I've given that advice to so many young Christians. Can I also give it to you older Christians? Don't stop asking questions. To this day, I ask Bible questions to people I believe can help me. Don't don't stop with that. All right, let's get the uh, second question here. When does it, studying, become seeking knowledge instead of seeking God? Now, that, that's, a, that's a good follow-up to this. 
if you, and when you're asking about the timing of it, when does it become, see, it, that can happen after one day, it can happen after 10 years. It all depends on that person's heart. Why do you want to know these things, right? So in First Peter, no, no, Second uh, Peter chapter one, it says you need to add to your faith. And the first thing on the list is add to your faith knowledge, right? So immediately after you get saved, you should start growing in knowledge. And it's not wrong to seek knowledge, right? That's fine. But why do you want to know those things? So this, this is, when it comes to the timing of this, when does it become this instead of that? That you have to just make sure in your heart, I'm asking these questions because I want to fully understand it so I can know God better. This is something God desires, right? The knowledge of God. He wants you to know him. So in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1, now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we have all we have all knowledge. So God has explained idols to us. We know what's going on there. The idol is just a piece of wood or stone. There's nothing, there's a, the idol can't hurt us, has no power over us. Then he says, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. So if you have this knowledge and you know the truth about idols, what are you doing with it? If, if you have this knowledge so you can go out in public and show it off, right? then verse 2, if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. So if you know it just for the sake of showing it, if you know it to show it, then you don't know it like you should know it. He knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. You ought to know something so that you can help people come closer to God and farther away from errors and mistakes and sin. Verse three, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. So in order to protect yourself from seeking knowledge for the wrong purposes, just stay madly in love with God. I think that's the best way to go about it. So I hope that answers that question. That's a very good follow-up question to that. All right, let's get some water in here. All right, next question. Is there any biblical backing for the idea of, <laughs> this person, bless, bless their heart, they put Afrikaans in the question. <laughs> God, God bless you. <laughs> so somebody tell me if I said that correct. I think I did. And then they, thank God, they explained this a little bit. Is there any biblical backing for the idea of Vurkhia? That is praying for someone, and whatever picture or thought pops up first is from God for that person. All right, so I, I asked around about this Vurkhia thing, Vurkhia, um, just to make sure I, I had the full understanding of it. And I'm glad this person specified it because there's actually two ways that I could answer this. So the way a lot of people, I think, understand Vurkhia, God gives you a word. Right. Many people think of this as a prophetic word. I think that's a bit of an abuse of the term a prophetic word or prophecy, but that's how a lot of people think of it. Now, is it possible that you're praying for someone and God puts something on your heart that you need to tell them? Yes, that's possible. That's pretty much how all the prophets in the Old Testament and New Testament, that's how they operate. Right? God says, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, go tell them this. And then they say, okay, thus saith the Lord, boom, and then tells them. So yes, that can happen. Can it happen on an individual level? Yes, absolutely. But might I caution everybody on this? If God puts something on your heart and you need to go tell that person, just do it in simplicity. 
don't make a big show of it. Um, I, I found so many times that it becomes very theatrical. Just go tell them what God told you to say, and uh, you've delivered the message. You've done your job. Now, the way this person has shaped it, Tanya, thank you for helping me on the pronunciation. I'm glad to know I said it somewhat right. I keep People have been telling me recently my Afrikaans accent, my South African accent is, is atrocious, so I need some encouragement. All right, so this person has specified praying for someone and whatever picture or thought pops up first in your, in your mind is from God for that person. Is there biblical backing for that? No. There's, there's no verse that would indicate that's how, that, that's how God is going to operate. Um, you, when you pray for somebody and a thought pops up in your mind, now that can happen, right? But that doesn't, just because it pops up or because it was the first thing that came up, that doesn't mean that it's from God. There have been many times I've been praying about something and I have 50 thoughts running through my head and I've got to look at the first, second, third and say, God, which one of these is right? And uh, boy, if I always went by the first thought that popped up, oof, I, I shudder to think of how life would be right now. Uh, but there, no, there's no verses that would uh, indicate that's how that works. So forgive me, the whole Vurkhia, I know that it's not my mother tongue, so maybe I'm not familiar with the Afrikaans Bible, but I, I, I don't remember anything scriptural that would connect, like I could show you a verse where that particular phrase is used. All right, and as I understand it, as a follow-up to that, this question comes forth. How should we understand the spiritual gifts concerning the word of wisdom and knowledge? So if I, if I remember correctly, the person was connecting these two things, saying that when God puts that thought or, or word on your heart or in your mind, that is the fulfillment of 1 Corinthians 12 with the word of wisdom or word of knowledge. So... Let's uh, go to that passage and try to deal with that. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12, we are dealing with spiritual gifts, and Paul lists a few of them. This is not the full list. But Paul says here, For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. I think the mistake that often is made here is to think that this is some mis uh, uh, mystical, mysterious, spooky type thing where the Spirit just comes upon you and boom, this thought comes in your mind out of nowhere. Can God whisper something in your ear? Right? Yes, he can. Can God reveal some new truth to you? Yes, God does that with, with humanity from time to time. But I don't think that's what we're dealing with here. I think this word of wisdom, um, it's the ability to give good advice. Now, the word wisdom is used hundreds of times in scripture. So it's a very I want to say easy Bible study because there's so many verses on it, right? You can gather so much information. But just go to the book of Proverbs and see what it says about wisdom. It commands you to get wisdom. With all thy getting, get wisdom, get understanding. Um, so the Spirit can give you the word of wisdom in many ways, but teaching you the Bible, um, speaking to you in a sermon, right? So you better understand things. Um, you can... You can pray about things, and the Spirit kind of explains it to you as you go so that you better understand what you're going through. And as you go through life, right, experience builds up. God teaches you things as you go through stuff, and then you can explain that to others later on. And the Spirit is the one who is teaching you those lessons, helping you through each situation. Um, 
when Ezra showed up to the people of Israel, this is Ezra chapter 7, the Bible says there that he had the wisdom of God in his hand. And he had a, he had a Bible. He had the Old Testament version of a Bible. He had a scroll of the law. So the Spirit of God, by giving you biblical knowledge, right, and true, let's say a true approach to life, right, a godly approach to life, that could be the, a word of wisdom. So when somebody comes and says, I need advice, they need a word of wisdom. There's nothing really mysterious about that. To another, the word of knowledge by the same Spirit. And this, this works very similarly. Um, this is just the Holy Spirit te teaching you what's right. Kind of ties into a couple questions ago, is it right to study? The Holy Spirit can give you this word of knowledge he can, by giving you a book. Not just the Bible, but other books that help you understand the Bible. Giving you a pastor or a, a, a friend in Christ, right? Some other Christian that can help, uh, help you understand things and disciple you. So the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge is just the Holy Spirit teaching you through all sorts of various methods uh, what's right, what's wrong, and then how to apply it, right? What's right and wrong, that's knowledge. How to apply it, that's wisdom. Okay, I hope that helps on that. It's a good question, though. And then last question we have for tonight. In what form is Jesus now? Now this actually, this question came from our John class recently. Uh, we covered this verse in John 4, 24. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So I, I hope I'm understanding the question correctly. But the person was asking, if God is a spirit, right, God the Father, and, and the Holy Spirit is a spirit, obviously, then what does this say about Jesus? Now, that's how the question, I think, was originally given to me. And as we worked it out, I, I, I hope I'm getting it right. Is he only a spirit right now, or does he still have a physical body? Now, if I can kind of shape this question out a little bit, um, I think some people, this is where, maybe where a misunderstanding would come in. When Jesus was on the earth, right, he was in human form. He was not in spiritual form. He was not limited to the spiritual realm. He was in the physical realm. So if God is a spirit and Jesus was not only a spirit, he was in human form, does that, does that mean he was less than God at that time? When Jesus was on the earth, he was God in human form. So God can take on different forms. This is something that Paul actually touched on in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6. Look at the wording here. He's talking about Christ. It says, Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. So God can take on different forms. In the Old Testament, he often took on an angelic form in order to appear and interact with, with uh, human beings. When the Holy Spirit came down at the baptism of Jesus, he was in the form of of a dove is the wording used in one of the gospels. So right now, all right, let's first cover this. When Jesus was on the earth, he was no less God. He was just God in a different form. God in his natural essence is a spirit. So John 4, 24, Jesus was answering the woman at the well about which mountain you should worship at. Right? She thought that it was Mount Gerizim and the Jews said it was in Jerusalem at Mount Zion. And Jesus is saying, listen, it, it's not about a physical place. It's not about geography. God is a spirit. So it's not enough to just go to this location and pray at this particular temple or this altar. There's more to God than that. 
So th- there's a much broader statement and, and meaning behind John 4, 24. Jesus was not trying to speak to the various forms that God can appear in. So Jesus was no less God. He was God in a different form. But right now, Jesus has the same form that he had after he rose from the dead. That is, he has a glorified resurrection body, right? that glorified body. I will say this, though. After he rose from the dead, he had the scars. Right? He looked like himself. He did. But after he gets back to heaven, he looks different. The, the appearance changes. It's not that he has a different body. There's no indication that he has some other body up in heaven that he you know, takes off his earthly body and puts on a heavenly body when he gets up there at the right hand of God. But he has eyes as a flame of fire. He has white hair. His feet are burned like brass. That's the description we have in Revelation 1. So there is a change in the appearance, but not necessarily the form. I still think it's his glorified, resurrected body, but with a different appearance. Now, we get a touch of this, like a foretaste of it in Matthew 17, when Jesus was transfigured. His face shined like the sun. And uh, you kind of have a glimpse of his, his second coming appearance. Right, how he's going to look in the future when, when he comes back. So that's, that's the form that he has now. I think he still has that glorified, resurrected body, but just with that, that different outer look to it. Okay, that's all the questions that came in. I hope this has been a help. Uh, you guys let me know real quick if there's anything else we need to cover. If, uh, if not, this is how we usually do it for Bible school. I'm not sure exactly who is tuned in. I see a lot of the folks that uh, do tune in for Bible school are here tonight. But if anybody has an extra question, slip it in as I'm praying, and I'll try to check the comments uh, before I, I sign off. But I appreciate everybody that made time for this tonight. Thank you again for all the questions. I do appreciate it. All right, Father, thank you for the time tonight that you've given us to uh, open the Word. Even on, uh, I opened an app with the Word on it. But uh, Lord, thank you for opening the Scriptures to us, for giving us the privilege of studying and learning more about you and your Word. Father, please continue to guide us into all truth. Lord, there's not a one of us that has it all figured out. And Lord, I pray that you'd continue to work in us that hunger and that desire for the sincere milk of the word. And Lord, might our motives always be right, that we want to learn these things, not just so that we can say that we know it. Uh, We don't want to show it off, Lord. We want to help people with it. We want to know you better and love you more so that that will be clear to people and it will draw them into a personal relationship with you. Thank you for your help tonight. Please, Lord, continue to speak to us throughout the rest of this week, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. No additional questions. Thank you so much for your time. For those of you in Potch, we do have our small group meeting tomorrow, so please confirm with either Francois or myself, and Lord willing, we'll see you soon.